Well, turn me with, with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. And I hope you brought your Bibles today because you're going to use them, especially towards the end. We'll be flipping through pretty fast. So if you normally read on your phone, you might want to pull out a pew Bible, which would be page 81. Please pray with me before we read the first chapter of Leviticus. God, our Father, oh, would you walk with us? Would you open our eyes so that we could see wonderful things and delights in your law? As you teach us, would our souls and hearts burn as we see Jesus in your plan for your gospel starting way back in the beginning of the Pentateuch, Lord. Would you be glorified? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priests shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is God's word. I grew up next to the hiking boot graveyard of the Appalachian Trail. I grew up in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. It's about 90 minutes north of here if you take I-76 up and you can get to the one side of this valley. It's bounded by this graveyard section of the Appalachian Trail. It's full of pointy shale stones that stick out of the ground. And so it's quite an ankle work out as you're walking through this. 
I remember walking a five-mile stretch once with my youth group as we were going up the, the ridge. And as you walked up the hill, there were these patches of these rocks. And all you could do was almost climb or hop from pointy rock to pointy rock. Now, I never lost a, 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 sec- a pair of shoes on this section, but I could see how you could shred a pair. And I could also see how a hiker who had walked hundreds of miles on either end, either going north or going south, could end up being discouraged when they encountered this section of the graveyard of the Appalachian Trail. And even if they didn't lose any shoes, I bet when they cleared it, they said, I'm glad that's over. Today we begin our journey into what is often the graveyard of Bible reading plans. If you have ever read straight through the Bible, you know what I mean. Perhaps some of you are even doing it this year. Right? You start off in Genesis, and it's wonderful. It's a strange world. The stories are compelling. Then you move to Egypt, and the first part is riveting. God's rescuing his people from Egypt, the, the, the plagues and all the miracles. And then you come to Mount Sinai. That's interesting. But, but then you have this long stretch of laws and, and uh, priestly and tabernacle instructions, you say, okay, this is a little different, but you get a break. There's Israel's rebellion and the Lord's restoration, and then, then you're back in the thick of it again for six more chapters, and it's all about the tabernacle and the priests again. You're thinking, wait a second, this is almost exactly what I read just a couple chapters before. And, and so now, to be honest, you're limping. You know, you're, you, you've got a little wind a little out of your sail, and you've made it through Exodus, and so you've climbed to this little, little summit, and you're hoping for a green valley below. And what greets you are the pointy shale rocks of the Bible-reading graveyard of Leviticus. Some of you experience this. So what makes Leviticus so difficult? Well, there's, there's chapters and chapters of long instruction, and they're often repeated from Exodus three or four times if you, if you go through the whole part of that Bible. It's, it's a very different world. What we were talking about, sacrifice and, and blood and altars and, and fires. And then there's hardly any story. Did you notice there is no introduction? Just the Lord calls to Moses, and off we go. We start with, with eight chapters of sacrifices and priestly laws. There's uh, uh, one or two chapters of narrative, and, and back there is more sacrifices, more laws. So today we are going to enter the world of Leviticus, the Bible reading plan graveyard. Who's with me? Who's coming? All right, I love it. So before we go any farther, let's just ask, why preach through this book? And by the way, the goal is not just to dip in here or there into a section and get an inspirational quote and then dive out. No, no, I want us to sit in the text to become familiar with this world that God reveals in his word. I expect to preach through this book for most of the rest of the year. You can pray for me, okay? But why do we want to do that? Well, some of you might be thinking the same reason that people climb Mount Everest, because it's there. But there are better reasons, and I hope you can sense that I'm a little excited, and so I'm just going to give you two to start off before we we get into the the meat of the sermon. And the first is that it gives you a deeper understanding of the the gospel. Leviticus forms much of the bedrock foundations for the truths that you believe. Listen to one of my favorite verses from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 121. This is the words of the angel of the Lord to Joseph. She, that's Mary, will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now that's beautiful. But think of all the questions you might have if you came to that scripture without knowing any Old Testament 
without growing up in the church or society influenced by Christianity. Young people, imagine someone at school that you know who's never set foot in a church, who's never read the Bible. What questions might they have? Well, who is Jesus? And what is sin? And why do people need to be saved from it? And how are they saved? And if you talk to them more about Jesus and what he did, they say, well, what's going on on the cross? The, the, the best, most loving man dying in utter agony after a sham trial. And this is God's plan? What are you talking about? Well, Leviticus provides some answers to those questions. Now, now, you take some of this background knowledge for granted, sin, sacrifice, substitutionary atonement. That's because you've, been grow, you've grown up in the church. But you can only understand and appreciate the good news of Jesus if you understand God has prepared that way for you in the Old Testament. Now, Pastor Mulker starting on the Gospel of Mark tonight. It's no accident that each of the four Gospels in some of the, the first few chapters intentionally link themselves back to the Old Testament. Jesus and the Apostles' Bible was the Old Testament. And they expect you to know it as they talk about the Gospel in the New Testament. And so as you study Leviticus, you are sinking roots down in the truth of God's Word. And this is going to make Jesus and His good news clearer, more beautiful, and more powerful in your life. It's the prayer. Another reason is that it is an act of humble obedience. God tells us the person that he notices is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This means you take his word seriously. All of it. You want to study it, including Leviticus. Now, I'll admit that Leviticus is challenging. I've been reading through it. I've been studying it. I've been reading through commentaries. And there are, it's, I'll admit, it is work. It's a little harder than, than, say, the Psalms or maybe something from Paul. And there are passages where I come away scratching my head saying, Lord, I, I just don't understand this. Or, or maybe I read a commentary and I think I might start to understand this and I think, that's even stranger. God, why did you do it that way? This is not bad. In fact, this is a healthy thing for us. I, I think we have a current hang-up in our society about anything that's hard or anything where we can't understand right away. You know, it, I only want to do it if it's fun. I only want to listen to a pastor if he's funny. I only want to follow a leader if she has a good sense of humor. Bottom line, if it's not instantly funny or entertaining or where I can see the point right up front, not doing it. Well, we can all agree humor is a gift of God. Every once in a while, Elizabeth will sit me down with a 30-minute dry bar comedy session and we'll just laugh ourselves silly. It's It's wonderful. But not everything in life is funny. And in fact, some of the best things in life are serious, hard, backbreaking, and decidedly not fun. It's the hard, difficult things of life that make it meaningful, and God designed it that way. Look at your Messiah. He died on a cross. And if that's what happened to Jesus, then you can expect that growing up and following Jesus will be hard too. And part of that might just be studying a book that he was taught as a very young boy. Now, I will do my best humanly to make this interesting as we explore this strange new world. But your God, job is to come and be ready to explore. God calls us to put aside our modern biases where, man, if I can't understand it right away, I'm not interested, I only want it to be funny, and ask humbly, Lord, what is in this book, in your scripture, that I can learn from? Teach me. So let us humbly seek to obey our Lord as we go through Leviticus. 
Now, I've spent a little bit more time than normal introducing why I think a Leviticus is important, but I pray you're a little bit more excited, a little more committed to this journey. So let's lace up our Bible hiking boots, ask God for the strength to climb up this mountain. The rocks may be sharp, but the view from the top is worth it. So the goal for the rest of the sermon is to be a sort of travel guide. You know, if you have a, a brochure or a pamphlet, it'll tell you how to get to your destination and maybe why you want to get there. But then once you do, it'll show you the significance of your destination, tell you what's important. So the rest of the sermon, we will be looking at the context and the content of Leviticus. It's going to be a bird's eye overview, the context and then the content. So let's start with the context. Look at the context. Kids, by the way, what does context mean? We talk about that quite a bit. But what does context mean? It just means the background. It means what is happening around Leviticus. If you don't know that, it's like coming into a conversation halfway. You've ever done that and you you kind of said something silly because you thought you knew something, but it was actually something different? You didn't know the context. Well, part of what makes Leviticus so challenging is that it starts so abruptly. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called... Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, so the Lord calls Moses and then he gives him eight chapters of sacrifice. Eight chapters of priestly instruction. And for you to understand and even get excited about Leviticus, you need to understand where Moses and the people are, what this tent of meeting is, and why they are there. After all, God did not just drop Leviticus into your lap out of nowhere. He had Moses write it And he actually put it in the very center, the middle book of the Pentateuch, for a reason. So to help you with the context, I'm going to give you two quick storylines to understand Leviticus. And they both move from one place to another. So I'm going to give credit to Dr. Michael Morales. He's at Greenville Theological Seminary. And he wrote this book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain, the Lord. This is the book that gave me courage to preach through Leviticus, so you can blame him. Um, but, but also, I will be using a lot of the insights from his book for these, these two themes for context and the, the movements in location. And so the first one is from Eden to Egypt. From Eden to Egypt. Now, if you read the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve start in the Garden of Eden, and God's people end up in the land of Egypt and will soon be slaves in bondage for 400 years. Now, kids, I know that if you've heard any story in the Bible, you probably know about the Garden of Eden. seems that we always start there. We're spending a good bit of time in adult Sunday school right there right now. But do you know what Eden means? You know what the word Eden means? It means paradise. It was the Garden of Paradise. It was the place where you wanted to be. And Eden was the place where God made Adam and Eve to serve him and live in a special relationship with him to enjoy his presence. But what happened? Again, kids, I bet you know what happened, and maybe you can tell Mr. Rich after the service. He might ask you. Uh, my parents were here last week, and so my dad was doing grandpa duty, reading some Bible stories to Tommy and Rachel, our youngest two. And like many, it started in the Garden of Eden. And my dad told me later, when Tommy and Rachel saw a picture of Adam and Eve, they just blurted, don't eat it. Don't eat it. He said the book didn't even mention fruit. And yet, somehow... Our twins, not even yet three, knew that, you know, some, some level, that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that if Adam and Eve ate from it, bad things would happen. Well, Tommy and Rachel were right. Don't eat the fruit. What happens? 
Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and they have to leave the special presence of God. This is what will drive the rest of the Old Testament. We are separated from God. Instead of that glorious presence in the garden, they experience a cursed world, sorrow and death. Now God shows them and their children grace. He selects Abram to be Abraham, the father of his people. But they never enter his presence like that again. In fact, they slowly make their way towards Egypt. And so in Genesis, in the beginning of Exodus, Egypt is the opposite of Eden. Now, it has some things going for it. It's the superpower of the world. It's full of food and culture and armies. But there's a very dark side to Egypt. Egypt is a pagan place full of all kinds of false gods. Egypt was ruled by Pharaoh, a man believed and worshipped as God. He was the snake king. He, he literally had a snake on his crown, on his headdress. And Egypt would become the place of slavery. When God rescued his people, his plagues would turn Egypt into a place of death. I'll develop this idea of Egypt a little more in the next sermon in Leviticus, two, two weeks from now in the evening. But, but can you see just from this, this transition, this brief tour, that God go from, God's people go from living in his presence in the garden to slavery, serving the snake king. As Dr. Morales puts it in his book, God's people then are homesick for Eden. We're homesick for Eden. Isn't that you? You live in this beautiful but broken world. You experience the snatches of joy, but it's full of sorrow and suffering. The brightest pleasures, if you pursue them for themselves, they always fade. The clouds of death and despair, they're just always threatening to close in. And, and yet, even if you ignore God and live for yourself, even then you know something is wrong, that, that you were meant to live for something, that you've lost something. Apologist Peter Creek puts it this way. He says, The four most salient facts about human condition are all desire perfect happiness. No one is perfectly happy. All desire complete certainty and perfect wisdom. No one is completely certain or perfectly wise. He goes on to say the two things we all want are the two things no one has. We behave as if we remember Eden and can't recapture it, like kings and queens dressed in rags who are wandering around the world in search of our thrones. If we had never reigned, why would we seek a throne? If we had always been beggars, why would we be discontent? The reason you want a purpose is because you're made for one. And without God, you go wandering about, searching for anything else to make sense of life, but only find, up, find out slavery and bondage. You end up in Egypt. Well, that brings us to our second journey from Egypt to Sinai. From Egypt to Sinai. God in his grace does not leave his people in slavery forever. He rescues them from the land of death and brings them to the mountain out Sinai. Now, there's a lot that's significant about Sinai. First of all, it's a mountain. Mountains are often places where you meet God, where God comes down. Sinai also has an extremely important place because it takes up a huge part of the Pentateuch. If you have a physical Bible and you see when Israel comes and when Israel leaves Sinai, it takes up a very large chunk of the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Israel comes, Exodus 19 stays all the way through Leviticus and leaves Numbers 10. That's 59 chapters 
right in the center of the Pentateuch. I, I had never noticed that until I was studying for Leviticus. And, and why did I miss it? Well, because you just get bogged down and all you can see is the next paragraph, these strange laws. It's easy to miss what God is saying, that Mount Sinai is in the middle and what happens there is important. God gives his covenant, which includes the law of the Ten Commandments, his promise to be with his people. He also gives them the tabernacle. Now, you heard the other name. It has two names, the tabernacle. You heard the other one in Leviticus 1. It's the tent of meeting. Now, why would God call the place where his glory dwells the tent of meeting? Because once again, God will meet with his people and they will experience his presence. Now, it's no accident that the tent of meeting and later on the temple is full of reminders of the Garden of Eden. There's, there's fruit, there's the, there's the tree of the menorah, there's the cherubim that stand guard at the most holy place, there's other clues which we'll explore in a future sermon. What God is saying to his people is, on Mount Sinai, when you come to my tabernacle, my tent of meeting, you are returning to the purpose for which I put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But there's a problem the very end of Exodus. Moses builds the tabernacle, the place that will bring God's people back into his presence. Look at verse 34 of Exodus 40. It's, 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 right, it's the paragraph right before Leviticus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory fills the tabernacle. You say, wonderful. This is great. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now there's a problem. Moses, not even Moses, the Lord's hand-picked prophet could enter the tabernacle when God is dwelling there in all of its glory. And so the book of Exodus ends so close, but God's people still cannot come into his presence. His glory is still too dangerous for them. And this is where Leviticus the center of the Pentateuch begins. You're supposed to ask the question, well, how do we get back to Eden? How can a sinful people approach a holy God? Well, you know the answer. We read it at the beginning of the sermon. Through sacrifice. Through the blood of someone else. Your only hope to approach God is for something, someone blameless to die in your place to gain you access and acceptance. So that's the context. That's the background. Let's examine the content. And here's the message of Leviticus in two words. You've already heard it today, but repetition is wonderful. If you had to sum up Leviticus, you could do it with these two words. Delivered and devoted. You are delivered from the wrath of God by sacrifice, and you are devoted to be holy in the presence of God. And this is what you and I will be examining in the coming months. Delivered and devoted. You can divide Leviticus into two halves based on these words. So let's look in your Bibles. We'll flip very quickly through Leviticus and just get this bird's eye view. So you're delivered from the wrath of God. Starting in chapter 1, you will see that sacrifice is necessary to approach the Lord. There, There are five different kinds of sacrifices, each meaning something a little differently, all of them requiring the death of an animal but the grain offering. So you see the burnt offering, keep, uh, the grain offering, chapter 2, chapter 3, the peace offering, sin offering, chapter 4, going into chapter 5, the guilt offering, and then the priests in the offering. 
starting at chapter 6, is prepares the priests who will offer these sacrifices to the Lord. You go to chapter 10 and it shows the disaster of approaching God in a way different than he commands. And this pollutes the temple. It, it, it causes a problem. And so then in chapters 11 through 15, the Lord gives people commands to tell them how to know the holy from the common and the clean from the unclean. You can just see the 11 clean and unclean animals, purification after childbirth. There's laws about leprosy, lepers, cleansing houses, bodily discharges. These are all to say to know the difference between the holy and the common. Let's just stop here for a moment. These sacrifices, these commandments may seem strange, but at the core is the question, how can I be made right with God? That's the question that's answered finally by the doctrine of justification by faith. To the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, when you're united to him, you will be declared righteous. And yet, how often are you tempted to prove to others, to God, to yourself, that you're a good person? To somehow prove yourself. If you're self-aware, you look at the desires of your heart, you see it coming up. It's a constant pull to, to have to try to prove ourselves. How many people do you know who are not Christians, who are determined to prove to themselves and others that they are a good person through their social media posts, through their acts of kindness or the causes that they promote? You see, we can't get away from this. When you are homesick from Eden, you will always need to prove your worth in some way. But Leviticus tells you, you can't do it. Don't even try. But God has already done it for you. You've been delivered from his wrath. But there's another part of Leviticus. If you've been truly delivered from God's wrath, then you will become devoted to be holy like God as you live in his presence. You will be devoted to be holy in the presence of God. Now, what does it mean to be devoted? Well, here's an example. I go down to get dialysis several times a week. It's now two times. It seems to be working for me. But you, you get a, 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 sh- a shift that you're assigned. And so I go down to Carl's Corner. It's right by the Aldi's in the shop right and the Rite Aid right there. And I'm on the early shift, so I arrive around 5.20, and I go now Tuesday and Saturday. And you get to know the regulars because everyone else is on their shift too and some people come a little earlier, some people come a little after and there's this gentleman who would always come after me and he wore his colors every time he came in. Can you guess what color his colors were? They were, they were green. And he had a green jacket with an eagle on it and I think his gym bag and hat might have said the same thing and that same logo. And I, It was at the beginning of the football season and after a few weeks when the Eagles were on the roll, the nurses would greet him, how are you doing? And he would say, we're 4-0. and We're 5-0. and We're 9-0. and We're 10-0. and We're 10-1. and Or whenever they lost their first time. But right, he was locked in. That's, that's devotion. Right? Devotion means that you center your life on what's most important and you, you give your life to that. A, a powerful analogy we'll see later in, in Leviticus as a sacrifice where you are burnt up. You're literally consumed by your passion for the Lord. So if you turn with me to Leviticus 17, starting here through the rest of the book, the main focus are laws to help God pe- God's people to walk and be holy as he is holy. And from now on, you will see the word holy popping up all over the place. Leviticus 17 to 27 is the shorter half of the book, and yet the word holy comes up twice as much as in the first book, the first half. 
And so chapter 17, there's laws about sacrifices. 18, sexual relations. 19 talks about the holiness of the Lord. It uncovers much of the Ten Commandments. And then look at chapter 20, verse 22. I'm going to read this. Encapsulates the Lord's desire. Chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean, the unclean birds from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beasts or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God has made Israel to be a special people coming out from the nation, coming into his presence, reflecting his holiness. And the rest of the book will spell out in some way or another how God's people should be holy to him. Now, again, in many ways, I understand this is a strange world. There are laws and customs which have been fulfilled in Jesus and no longer apply to us. But this second part still speaks. It tells you Following God requires commitment to you on your part to his will. Right? Commitment on your part to his will. There are many, Christ, many people today who call themselves Christians. You don't ask them what that means. They say, oh, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. Of course, that's a good thing. And say, well, what does discipleship look like for you? Oh, you know, I don't go to church. Well, you know, do you, do you read your Bible? No, I don't, I'm not really a Bible person. And, and you don't, see, you know, do, you, do you give any of your, no, no, no. Um, And you don't see a change in their life or sense of excitement or devotion. You wonder, have you been changed? You see, your response to God's sacrifice cannot be apathy, but devotion. And Leviticus tells you, you can't just claim to know God without your life being changed. You can't say, I'd like the heaven part, but not the holiness part. I'd like the, you know, no hell part, but not not the devoted part. What can you learn from these laws that seem so strange? Leviticus tells you that the little details in life matter. God cares about the details of your life. And because he does, there is purpose in those details. Now, my generation and the ones after me struggle with a profound sense of identity crisis, of meaninglessness. We, we want to make a difference, but we don't know why and how. And, you know, these little things to us aren't that interesting. Have you heard the term adulting? Right, where, where you, you do just the normal things of life, but I don't really feel like I'm an adult, so I'm just going to say I'm adulting. I'm pretending to be an adult. Right? They're not fun. They're not, expi- they're not inspiring. But, but I will tell you, when done to the glory of God, homework, washing dishes, the weekly report at work, the, the pulling the weeds up, that brings him honor. You know, it's, it's not just the big moments, the Sunday worship, the weddings, the funerals, but whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. And as you do that, you become holy like him. Now, we don't do this on our own power. Our, our, our living out in holiness flows out of us being sanctified, set apart, because God sacrificed for you, but you're to be devoted to God. Now, in this very brief flyover of Leviticus, you may have noticed, I skipped a very important chapter. 
Turn with me back to chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Remember earlier that I said Leviticus was the center of the Pentateuch. Well, this is not by accident. Right? It, it answers that question, how do we return to Eden? How can we go back to God's presence? Well, thematically, not, not quite as far as the, volume, the, the text, but thematically, the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. And during this day, once a year, the high priest enters into the most holy place and makes atonement for the sin of people with, with blood from animals. And finally, we see here, God dwelling with his people. They can meet with him and not be consumed in his holy presence. So you see, the Day of Atonement is the center of Leviticus, which is the center of the Pentateuch. And it tells you that salvation comes through sacrifice. And as beautiful as this is, it's still not enough. The high priest has to offer sacrifices for himself. He has to take an incense into the altar. It's, there's, there's still a veil, a cloud between him and God. He can only come once a year. He must do it again every year. The door is not fully open. And as you travel through Leviticus, you should long for a better anointed one than Aaron, for a better priest. And in this way, Leviticus and all of the Old Testament longs for God's true anointed one, his Messiah. And so when you come to Matthew 121 that we read earlier, and she will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. Now you understand there must be a priest who must offer a sacrifice before the most holy place so that God's people can be delivered from their sins and be devoted to him. And the book of Hebrews expounding on this after talking about the beauties but the limitations of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus says this in 9-11. But when Christ, Messiah, appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the anointed one, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see there again? You're delivered so you can be devoted. People of God, in Messiah Jesus, you are finally and ultimately delivered and devoted. And when you understand that, Leviticus is not the Bible reading graveyard, but a garden of delights. It's a garden of delights. Please pray with me. Father, would you give us the faith and the humility as we step out in these next weeks? Would we rejoice as we see your, your plan unfolding, your holiness and experience your love? As we walk away today, would we remember we do not fear your wrath, we are delivered. And yet you call us to walk out as people who are devoted this week to your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.